This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Dunedin Stories in Sound, a podcast series created by Sarah Mankelo, who is completing a science communication internship at the University of Otago. This podcast is part of an ongoing project, Aotearoa Stories in Sound, produced by Professor Nancy Longnecker at the Centre for Science Communication. In March 1848, the first European colonial ship arrived in the Dunedin Harbour. The ship was called the John Wycliffe, and it was carrying 97 passengers from Scotland. From early journal entries, the colonists were captivated by the sight of their new home. From the striking landmarks along the Otago Peninsula, the abundant wildlife with birds of all descriptions, to the forests that stretched right down to the water's edge, the harbour was considered something of transcendent beauty. Having spent 100 days at sea, laying eyes on the land for the first time would have been greatly anticipated. But imagine what they would have heard as well as seen. Due to unfavourable winds, the John Wycliffe was unable to properly enter the harbour when it first arrived, so the sea would have been loud and wild, the wail of the wind mixed with the calls of all kinds of seabirds overhead. They might have heard distant birdsong from the surrounding forests, the yelps of fur seals, the splashes made by southern right whales, or people at the Otako Māori settlement calling from their walkers. The arrival of the John Wycliffe to Dunedin marked the permanent colonisation of Otago by Europeans. It also marked the beginnings of significant changes to the landscape and to the soundscape too. and welcome to episode 3 in Dunedin Stories and Sound with me, Sarah Manktelo. With a degree in ecology and music, I am captivated by the environment and the sounds of nature. In this series, we consider the ways we connect with our local environments through sound, uncovering stories that these sounds can tell us. In this episode, we continue the oral cruise of the Dunedin Harbour while aboard the Monarch, as we hear more about life, history and sound in Dunedin's marine environment. Along the way, we'll hear more from Neil Haraway. We'll also hear from Jennifer Catamol, a music educator at Otago University, as she discusses the Māori cultural perspective of connecting to nature through the practice of tānga pōro, or traditional Māori music making. We hope by sharing some of these stories, it will inspire you to explore and appreciate local wild spaces and to tune in to acoustic Aotearoa. I'm aboard the Monarch, an iconic boat in Dunedin that runs wildlife cruises of the Dunedin Harbour and Coast. We've been making our way down the Dunedin Harbour, exploring the wildlife and sounds found here. Currently we're docked at Weller's Rock in Otako, a small settlement near the head of the Otago Peninsula. As the location of a significant whaling station in the 1830s, Weller's Rock is an important part of Dunedin's early history. I spoke to Neil Haraway about the history of whaling in the Dunedin Harbour. 
Neil is a wildlife filmmaker and the owner of the Monarch Wildlife Cruises. So I've heard a couple of interesting things about whaling uh, down south. One was an account of the noise that the whales made in particular bays that was like a cacophony because they make calls as well as their blows. And there were so many whales that they would keep people awake, which you don't tend to think about. Um, in Otago Harbour, the Weller brothers came here in the 1830s. In the first year, they killed 300 whales in the harbour because female southern rights have their babies in shallow water or bring them into shallow water um, and are slow and easy to kill. And they never left the harbour for three years. So that's uh, scary and amazing. They built a seawall out of the skulls of these animals. Um, and then after three years, they left the harbour and the, joined in competition with whaling stations to the north and south. Within 10 years, there were no whales left, you know, commercially extinct. So it took a long time to recover. Um, the whalers brought measles. I mean, there had been probably measles brought before, but there was a particular epidemic of measles out at Otako that killed um, 600 Maori people. So on that bare um, dune in front of the marae, there's a burial place from people from the measles epidemic. I mean, the whalers, the main activity was the 1830s. The sealers were here earlier, 1790s, the turn of the 1800s. Um, and they, early Maori had hunted seals, but the, the sealers kind of finished off the, the seal populations up and down the coast. Um, so those were early European contacts with Maori and with the nature and the first of the boom and bust industries, you know, um, mining the natural world that, that have followed, um, probably in, are still following in different ways. Other odd scraps, the Weller brothers, three of them, um, sent the oil back to Europe in barrels and sent the baleen back to be used as plastic substitute. And ironically enough, the oldest brother died of tuberculosis and was himself sent back home in a barrel, preserved <laughs> for burial. <laughs> and the other very cool thing that we, he we heard just during lockdown was the sea shanty called Soon May the Weller Man Come. And the Weller men were the Weller brothers from, from Weller's Rock. Um, so that was uh, an interesting um, sound um, echo in song from, from the whaling days. At Weller's Rock today, there is little to show about the whaling days. But Otako is an important area for other reasons too. Before the arrival of Europeans, Otako was the place of a prominent Māori settlement. The Otako Marae, just down from Weller's Rock, was one of the places where the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840. Today, it is still one of the most significant marais, or meeting places, in Otago. Here, along the Otago Peninsula, Māori have lived and learned alongside the water and wildlife for centuries, and have witnessed the changes to the landscape, and to the soundscape as well. With such close ties to Dunedin's marine environment, I was interested to learn more about the Māori world view of connecting to the natural world through sound and listening. 
I spoke to Jennifer Catamo at Otago University. Jen studies and teaches the music of different cultures. My name's Jennifer Catamo. Um, so I'm an ethnomusicologist here in the School of Performing Arts. Uh, and a particular kind of passion of mine is taonga pōro, or traditional Māori musical instruments. Taonga pōro range from flutes and trumpets to percussive instruments, each made from natural materials from the New Zealand environment. Traditionally, they were used for a number of functions, such as for signalling purposes, to communicate with Māori gods, or to mark the dawning of a new day. What can you tell me about the practice of taonga pōro as an insight into the Māori worldview and perspective of connecting with the natural world? For me, it comes back to the, these taonga being sacred. So they're, they're regarded as being the living descendants of Atua Māori, so the Māori gods and goddesses. Um, and those goddesses and gods are very much tied to the natural environment. Um, so we have Tafiri Mate, God of the Winds, um, who, whose children include instruments like Porotiti, a spinning disc, or Pudarehua, the bull roar that's swung around. Um, you've got uh, Taonga that sort of whakapapa back to Hine Rautauri, goddess of flute music, who then, you know, one of her progenitors is Tane, God of the Forests. Um, and Tane, of course, relates also to all of, all of the bird and the insect sounds. So there are particular instruments that relate just to the sounds of birds and insects that kind of fuck up strongly back to Tane. Um, you have Hine Putuhue, goddess of the gourds, um, who's also goddess of peace in, in some kōrero. And so, you know, you have her wonderful, sweet, mellow, peaceful voice that, that you hear with the with the gourd instruments. So I mean they're, they're just a few examples but um, you know if you think even more broadly back to the the word taonga uh, pūro which you know may or may not be a relatively recent um, name or an umbrella term for, for these taonga there's no idea kind of who coined it or when um, but, but pūro is, is a really interesting term to kind of try and unpack so taonga treasure, you know, things that are very, very precious and, and sacred. Um, but pōro is, um, yeah, there are very various definitions of that word that sort of relate back to ideas of um, a, a sound like, like the sound of a waterfall or the sound of, uh, of waves crashing in on the shore or, you know, sort of um, deep, grinding kind of sounds. That makes me think more of sounds that literally inspire that sense of awe in me. You know, if you're standing right beside a waterfall and, you know, there's no chance you can have a conversation with anybody else or really hear anything else or or standing on the shore when the waves are really crashing in and just the 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 literally awesome force behind behind that and behind that sound. Um, you know, the, these and these are also sounds that are, for me, spark that idea of the eternal. But you know, the, all of these sounds that are just kind of this is the, the force or the, the power of nature in a very raw, very real kind of form. And and that's what Tonga Pōro are about. That's that's that kind of sacred power that that they they channel, that they voice. Um, and that 
as living descendants that you know that's their legacy that's 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 who they are <laughs> while Jen herself was a student studying music at Otago University, she had a particularly memorable lesson with Richard Nuns, a traditional Maori instrumentalist that helped inspire her to eventually study and teach Tanga Poro. I think one of the things that really impressed me when I was listening to Richard speak was his stories that connected the Taonga to the natural sound world. So particularly his stories about um, when he was playing puterino, uh, a type of, uh, can be played as both a flute and a trumpet, um, to to some whales in a boat somewhere just off the coast of Patagonia, <laughs> or somewhere like that, started with P. Um, and, and his story about how he, he was playing and the, the whales had their heads out of the water listening to him play and then once he'd finished and then they gradually sank beneath the waves and swam away and I was just like oh my god like that's incredible how incredibly powerful a way to to connect with the world around us and for the, for the other creatures that, that share our environment through sound like that just ah. Oh. And the fact that, you know, you can have these sort of, it's these conversations or these moments where, um, you know, either you're really listening and then they're listening to you and it's just that conscious connection through sound, which is pretty phenomenal. <laughs> I was curious what tangaporo, Māori people at Otako, may have once made from Dunedin's marine environment. Can you tell me a bit about tangaporo that are connected to the ocean? From Tangaroa, God of the Sea. We have shells, um, and uh, it's actually one of my favourite pastimes, just wandering along the beach and picking up various shells and and um, seeing what their voices are like. Um, obviously, you've got to just make sure that the shell is not inhabited at the time because, yeah, you don't want to do that. But, um, but it, particularly down here in the Murahiku region, so southern South Island, uh, these the the cook's turbans um, as flutes, and yeah, they they're just so 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 sweet and beautiful. It's actually like I mean I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I love kind of picking up and beach combing and collecting bits and pieces anyway. But if I was doing that normally, I'd I'd look for a shell that was absolutely flawless and perfect. But now I actually really like looking for the ones that have got holes naturally worn in the shell because those are natural finger holes and you change the pitch quite a lot um, just by by using those as finger holes for your flute. Um, one, one of my favourites <laughs> is this one. Um, I was lucky enough to find this on a beach over on Rakohu, Chatham Island. And it's just a big barnacle. But when I saw this on, on the beach and it was just one of those oh, kind of moments, so excited. And it, it plays beautifully. It's just it's one of my favourite flutes. <laughs> I asked Jen to give me a demonstration. The barnacle is about the size of my thumb. Jen places it by her mouth and blows across it like a flute. Jen rummages among her collection of tanga poro for more shells to play. So 
so you know like little cook's turban like this <sighs> And then you get um, just little cockle shells like this. And uh, same name for these is for the seagull. <laughs> you can't see why. Because <laughs> they, sound, they sound just like seagulls do. This discussion with Jen was really opening my mind to the possibilities of music making and to the possibilities of beachcombing. Some of my favourite, favourite taonga uh, are actually ones, ones like these shells or the barnacle that, uh, you know, they're found sound. They're ones that you, you find in the environment and then you can just sort of, you know, sit down and play them at the time and just really listen to where you are and immerse yourself in that and converse with everything else that's there with you and everyone else that's there with you. <laughs> I mean, most people probably think this is completely bonkers. But, but it really does shift your perception of yourself in relation to, to the environment that you're in. Traditionally, some tanga portal connected to the ocean were also made from the bones of spiritually important wildlife to Māori such as whalebone. I'm lucky enough to, to have one, a nguru made from a sperm whale tooth. Um, and again, I think just, just thinking back to that, that corridor, that story from Richard Nunn's and his experience of playing, that you know, just for anybody who's ever been able to hear whale song, again, it's, it's kind of like the bird song. There's just this kind of, it's, a, it's one of those touchstones for for that Māori sound world. You know, and anybody who would have been out underwater collecting kaimoana back in the day probably heard whales a lot more than we're able to now. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, there's that, that other wonderful connection through using both whale bone and whale teeth to, to make taonga. Um, even pilot whale jaw bones is a percussive instrument. Um, so again, a very sort of spiritually important um, creature <laughs> for Māori, just just as as the um, just as birds were, and uh, yeah, all all of that kind of comes through into uh, into the sound world of Taonga Port, or it's all part of it. Back on the Monarch, we've left Weller's Rock and are heading towards Tairo ahead in the open Pacific Ocean. On our right, we pass Pilot's Beach. Here you will find another special species that makes its home in the Dunedin Harbour, the Korora, or the Little Blue Penguin. Korora make their nests in cliff-faced burrows at Pilot's Beach, and I've been told they make a racket of short squawks when they come into shore each night. During my korero with Neil, he had something interesting to say about Korora. It's a great story about little blue penguins, Kororā, 
In the south, apparently the early Māori hunted them all out, and Hoani Langsbury from at uh, uh, Otako told us this, and they have recolonised from Australia in the last 400 years. So they're actually closely related to Australia, more closely than related to Australia than they are to the penguins in the north of New Zealand. And up there, penguins come ashore in ones and twos. Here they come ashore in groups, as they do in Australia. And their calls still have the Aussie accent in the south of New Zealand, so, <laughs> which always, the tourists always like that. Passing Tyro ahead in the Monarch, we get our first look at the Northern Royal Albatross Colony. Those adults soaring around as well. There is one just above the lighthouse and a bit to the right. It's easy to spot a northern royal albatross. They are graceful giants with huge three-metre wingspans that they use to glide effortlessly as they search for fish and squid. On the headland, we can just make out the little white specks of albatross chicks. If all goes well this year, come September, October, when the chicks fly away, if all of the chicks up there successfully fledge, it will be a record season for the colony of albatross at Tauraroa Head. There's 33 chicks. While speaking to Jen, she describes how Māori once made traditional tanga pōro out of the bone of tōroa, or albatross. So the use of uh, tōroa bone, or kōiwi tōroa, um, to make flutes goes back a long way, um, especially you know this um, eastern coast of the South Island, particularly strong here and it's probable that it was developed by the first peoples who, who lived in this part of the world, our part of the world. And then when Kaitahu came down from, from the north, um, that's when it really kind of seemed to really take off. But it was a practice that was here before then. But there's just something so impossibly sweet about the sound of Koiwi Tōroa. Um, and uh, I remember I quoted off from Rob Thorne, who visited down here a while ago. And, uh, you know, for, for him, it, that sound is the sound of, of love and of longing. And he, he linked that back to um, tōroa, mating for life, but also spending very long periods of time apart from their mates. So that, that sound of that gentle kind of aching longing, sweet, loving, beautiful sound. Um, for him, that just that was, again, it's that connection between the material and how that communicates through, through to the tongue itself and such, you know, that intrinsic relationship between them. Out here on the coast, there are all kinds of seabirds around us, feeding, soaring and calling. Neil had an interesting observation about the sounds of seabirds. It struck me when we're out at sea, um, usually fishing, but also sometimes just if you have a lot of birds around feeding on a a school of, of fish, the incredible harsh noise, particularly that mollymawks make, it's almost like a donkey brain and that got me thinking about why seabirds have such harsh 
cries. And then if you listen to the radio in New Zealand, bird calls in the morning. You know, so you have albatross or cormorants or uh, the smaller relatives of albatross, petrels, and they have a, a really harsh, croaking, squawking voices, penguins likewise. Then you hear this, the tui or the bellbird or the kokako, and you think, why should they be so melodious and seabirds be so raucous? And I, I don't know the answer. Um, is it to do with the noise of the waves um, or not? Uh, so, yeah, why? Um, the calls obviously are still um, serve the same purpose for, for recognition of pairs. Um, possibly not territory, but possibly is also territory. Uh, but just, just the nature of the calls is so different. The winter sun is low on the horizon now, and it strikes the wings of the albatross, the mollymorks, the cormorants and the skewers feeding in the waters around us. We're at the end of our cruise, and it's time to head back into the harbour. But one of the Monarch crew has spotted something in the water ahead of us. The pectoral fin of a humpback whale waves at us as it surfaces briefly before sinking back into the water. In conversation with Neil, I asked him if whales were returning to the Dunedin Harbour again. We are seeing more whales returning now. Apparently in the last 10, 15 years, there have been a lot more sightings. So we see the humpbacks uh, going north in autumn and back south in spring, and the southern right whales more in winter. So fingers crossed they, they, they keep coming. They, they are bigger, slower breeding animals than fur seals, but they were only starting having pups here in about the 1960s. So that's 160 years after the slaughter. And the sea lion, first pup, was born mid-1990s. And now, last year, there were nearly 20 pups born, sea lions up and down the coast. So the numbers of them are slowly growing too. So whales will be the last. I think there's a big difference in the public consciousness now about New Zealand's special nature um, compared with what it used to be. You know, we were colonists, both Māori and Europeans, came here and changed this country by changing the environment, by hunting animals, by destroying their habitat, by bringing predators and competitors to the native animals. We've changed that a lot, and it was just like, oh, yeah, we have to. We have to make a living. And now I think the the mindset has come around to there has to be a balance. 
we have to make living spaces for the New Zealand creatures as well as us. And I think that's a much more sustainable mindset for the future. This was episode three in Dunedin's Stories and Sound. We hope you have enjoyed tuning in to the life and sounds in Dunedin's marine environment. The underwater whale sounds you heard were kindly provided by Steve Dawson of the Marine Science Department at the University of Otago. This series is part of the Aotearoa Stories and Sound project, a project out of the Otago University's Centre for Science Communication that is recording and compiling meaningful sounds from around New Zealand and sharing stories about them. Podcasts in this series are available on the Otago Access Radio website. If you're interested in hearing more about the stories and sounds from local wild spaces, have a listen to the podcast series Tune Into Nature with Karthik SS, which can be found on Otago Access Radio, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you to Nancy Longneck at the Centre for Science Communication. Music for this podcast was from Blue Dot Sessions. Kia ora and thank you very much for tuning in today. You've been listening to Dunedin Stories in Sound, a podcast series created by Sarah Mankalo, who's completing a science communication internship at the University of Otago Centre for Science Communication. For further episodes in this three-part series, look for Dunedin Stories in Sound on the website oar.org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.